My name is Danny Mower and welcome to At The Source. This interview style podcast brings you meaningful conversations and interesting topics from all around the world so that we can learn about our neighbors, this crazy thing called life, and ultimately bring more awareness into our daily experiences. I deeply believe in the art of open communication. So this podcast is really the product of me going to the source of whatever conversation or topic we're having and asking all kinds of questions, both for you and for me to understand more. That's how I roll. I ask a lot of questions and I hope you find inspiration in these conversations and start to ask deeper questions in your own life. Let this be your weekly dose of curiosity and contemplation. And without further ado, enjoy the show. Okay, I'm very excited today because I have Lee Gombieski <laughs> um, on my podcast today, and Lee is my cousin, and I'm very, very excited to have him on here. So I'm going to just pass that over to you and let you introduce who are you, what do you do, and what's important to you. Sure, sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, it's it's an honor to. I'll be able to connect with you again. I know we've been, you know, in and out of each other's lives for a while now. So I appreciate you having me. Um, but as you mentioned, um, my name is Lee Gombieski. I am a um, assistant professor of psychology and I'm located at uh, SUNY Fredonia, which is the state uh, of New York general, uh, you know, public higher education system. Um, and this is my first year teaching um, my background is in developmental psychology. So that is kind of my specialization. So I teach a lot of things um, like child development courses, adolescence, lifespan development, some intro classes, cognition, um, really anything that pertains to individual development um, from a psychological and physiological manner. Um, and then my research focuses on um, like mental health and minority stress um, and, you know, support systems among um, LGBTQIA plus individuals. And more of my studies have been focused on sexual and gender minority college students. Um, so, you know, I, I focus on the population that I serve and work with, which is pretty cool. And I'm also allowed to kind of tap into those that identify as queer or some type of minority population. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the area of research that I've I've really kind of given headfirst into. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And I've gotten to see mostly honestly over social media because you lived far away from us and then I I moved and um so we've had you know these intersecting times and I've seen I feel like for a while every time I would log on I'd see you have graduated from a new program and then we're oh, gonna gosh. like enter into yeah. a new a new one you've been getting degrees for a long time yes I've, um, I've racking up as many letters after my name as I can because <laughs> it's not long so it's enough, cool right? <laughs> yeah, it's cool to see how um how your work has uh focused in such a way where you're able to um connect with the communities that you serve. So, yeah, would you be willing to tell me um a little bit more about that and your journey? Um yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's that's a really kind of interesting way to look at it. Um is that I think my research and my track like with the work that I do, both academia in academia and like teaching, um, has kind of morphed to me. 
Like, I think that um, if you would have told me years ago when I was like an undergrad, A, that I would have come out as a trans man and B, that I would be working with trans individuals and, you know, gender nonconforming and in, in sexual and gender minorities, I would have probably laughed in your face because I was so set on going into psychology. And like, I knew very early that I wanted to teach and you know, my mom and, and everybody that knows me knows my mom. Um, and my, my whole family, my mom, my dad are both professors and then everybody else in my family teaches. So I went into psychology thinking like, I don't know if I want to teach like everybody else, but I really can't see myself doing anything else. And I just, I went into it knowing like, I really love psychology and I really love being in the classroom and I love teaching. And I, I think I have a, a decent, like, you know, predisposition to do that just based off of my personality and the way that I am with groups of people and talking a lot, obviously. Um, so I wanted to marry the two and, and teach psychology. And so I started in like um, creativity research in undergrad and I went to and I presented at a couple different conferences about like fostering creativity in college students because a lot of college students or really anybody feels that they don't have, you know, creative like aspects about themselves. And we went into it kind of trying to get college students to participate more in creative endeavors, anything from, you know, a subject related to just creative expression to, you know, art, music, linguistics, things like that. Um, and loved that for a really long time, but then had to graduate from Edinburgh, um, got my undergrad and went back to school um, and went to Pitt for two years in their master's program um, and studying applied developmental psychology because um, I really liked looking at development and I really liked learning about how people evolve into who they are and everything from child, mm -hmm. you know, childhood on to late adulthood. And I loved like that lifespan journey and watching a person's evolution, so to speak. So I was like, oh, development mm -hmm. is my thing. Went into that, went into a program at Pitt that like I had a really incredible time, but it was, it wasn't quite focused on education. It was more on like practice so people who were employed in like hospitals working with children with terminal diagnoses and like a lot of it was like medical based or intervention based which was like totally cool but not my cup of tea um, but mm -hmm. I graduated from that program and wanted to go back and I almost there was a, a kind of a moment I took a, to a year two years off and I taught K through four education which was a hoot mm. and I, I <laughs> loved it so much that I almost went into that field loved it so much that I almost went back and got my degree in, in like uh, elementary ed, but I would have had to redo everything. I, I would have washed my entire, both degrees away, mm. had just gotten. And I was like, I can't do that to myself. And so then decided, let me take a year. And my, one of my good friends offered me just an adjunct position again in teaching psych. Cause you can teach mm. with a master's as an adjunct or lecturer, which is literally the worst money you could possibly make doing something that is so time consuming. Like I, I had to work two other jobs and those two other jobs were paying wow. more than my adjunct work. Like, and I'm sure there are people that probably are listening, agreeing with me because they're like, you know, adjunct work doesn't pay at all. So kind of bit the bullet and was like, I really like adjuncting. I really like teaching in the college environment. So that's when I went back to school in Virginia which is mm -hmm. where my dad resides. He lives in uh, Virginia Beach slash Norfolk area. So I there was one school in Norfolk, Old Dominion University, and I just kind of put all my eggs in one basket. And I said, if I get in here, it's a sign. 
then I'll move down, help my dad out because he was going through some surgeries and needed some house remodeling stuff done. So I was like, all right, I'll go live with him, help him out and, and start this program. And it was the only option I had at the time that was able to kind of cater to both my family life and my education. And so I did that. And finally, four years later, graduated just this past spring um, with my degree in health psychology, which includes development um, in, in that in that program and included development. And um, through a long, long, stressful process, went on a million interviews, uh, wound up at Fredonia here, which is about an hour away from the most of my family in Erie, Pennsylvania, um, which I know is where you're from and your whole family is. Cause I really needed to get back to the people there. I mean, Virginia was, was, was good while it was, while, while I was there, but um, I found my place back here in Fredonia and they kind of, everything really fell into my lap. I kind of consider it like a sign that this is where I was supposed to be. Cause I had a whole bunch of job stuff fall through before that I turned one down and the very last interview I went on was here at Fredonia. And within like an hour of that, that interview day, I was like, I really hope I get this. I this is what I want, and it it fell through. And I am I am through the moon. I am really really loving it so far. It's only my yeah. first semester technically teaching full time here, but um, yeah, this is this is the perfect fit for me. It really is. That's awesome. Congratulations, uh, and on Thanks. your <laughs> entire academic career, and then finding a spot that feels good. I think that's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good to, uh, with all that stress, you know, the year of applying and not knowing. And like every day I was like checking my inbox and like saying, okay, is something going to come through today? Is something going to come through today? And it's so uncertain. And I mean, I know a lot of people have gone through job search processes before, but it is so different when you're in academia because there's like such a small window. And like, if you, if you go on an interview, they have, they like, I'll give you an offer and then like, you have to decide. And not all the schools line up and your, your whole life is in balance and it's, it's just very stressful. Um, but I felt confident. I just kept trusting that like whatever would work out, like the, that process that I went through, like I, I trusted what I had done up to that point and the years that I put into this. And I said, you know, I did the work now. I just have to wait and see what happens kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Wow. But like, that feels like a good uh segue into mental health because that limbo period um is intense and i feel like i'm going i like to call it the void you know you're in the void where you don't know where what things are and you're kind of in that rebirth situation but you don't know when when it's gonna happen or when you're gonna get you know whatever's on the other side and it can be really, really challenging to keep your head up and be like, all right, things are going to work out, especially when there's a whole host of other pressures around. Um, So uh, it's really heartwarming to see like how you've put in, you know, so much time into something that you care about. And then even having that like stretch of limbo of, oh my God, I don't know what's going to work. And then pop, you're out on the other side Mm -hmm. and doing something that you love. So I just want to congratulate on that again because it's it's really awesome to see and also uh I feel like it's a good reminder for those of us who are in that limbo period now that things eventually um in the right timing work out for us 
Yeah. And then sometimes like, not to sound cliche, but a lot of times it's better than you could have imagined. You know, like I, I remember going on a couple interviews and thinking, okay, I could see myself here. And I was, I remember like trying to talk myself into it. And I like thought that that would be the only option. So I left thinking like, I mean, I almost took positions at other parts of, of the state. And like, I kept in this region because I know like I would not move South if you could pay me right now. Like, and we could get into that late in a minute, but you know, I, uh, I remember thinking like, okay, you know, this is a good place. I could see myself there. And I started like kind of coaching myself into it. But at the end of the day, looking back, I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't take that because I knew it wasn't, it was close, but there was like pieces missing everywhere I went up until Fredonia. Like it was either like the location was great, but it was a really not the program I wanted or like the program was fantastic, but it was so far away. And like, mm-hmm. it was just nothing really hit all the check you know, check box, check the boxes off for me. And f- when I found Fredonia, it was, you know, I actually, I actually took it, um, you know, at the very, very end when all of my other colleagues had had their positions already lined up, like they didn't even post this until like January, I think. And all the other jobs, like if you know, in the job market in academia, they post, they start posting in like October, November for the following fall. And they didn't come through. And I was, I went on so many interviews and turned places down and then suddenly randomly saw this pop up at Fredonia on in January. And I was like, where the heck have you been my whole life? And within like, it was boom, boom, boom. It was like, you know, a week later they contacted me. And then two weeks after that, I was already there at the interview. And then by the third week I had already made a decision. Like it was, it was real quick. Um, so yeah, it was great. (laughs) It was so relieving. Yeah. Cool. So I'd love to talk to you more about your experience, um, specifically around, uh, like knowing or the process of knowing, like you're talking about development and and the evolution of someone over their life and, and, um, that experience of recognition, going back to like your experience of being a trans man and recognizing, you know, also you're within this like whole long timeline of academia, which has, you know, lots of pressure in it, but then also there's this personal experience that you're going through of deciding what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And um, I'd love to hear more about your experience, just kind of recognizing, oh, this is, this is something that is important to me and who I want to become. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody that comes out as anything other than heterosexual, cisgender, straight, whatever you want to call it, which is how our world is really is framed. Um, I think that everybody's experienced there's so many individual differences, but when you look at like generally an individual's process, there are a lot of like universals that are often commonly experienced by a lot of these individuals. So, I mean, a lot of us that are trans or that are queer in some aspect um, that have a coming out process, right? We'll look back and often say, oh, this was a sign. This was a sign. I knew it here. And, you know, hindsight is always 2020. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people who don't have that process don't really understand what it's like to honestly feel just different, whether it's, you know, who you are attracted to, to like how you present yourself. And I mean, we could talk all day about the nuances of gender identity and how it includes things um, like gender expression. You know, it also may include your orientation. It may include, 
you know, um, just your presentation, you know, overall. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't understand that, like, especially I've noticed older generations have a hard time separating things like orientation with like your gender, with like your biological sex. And they think that they're all one and the same. Right. And we know that that's not the case. Um, but I think looking back, I remember, and I'm sure you, you knew me since I was really young also, like there were all those telltale signs where like, I just felt more masculine pretty much from birth. I mean, I never really experienced that feeling of femininity, honestly, throughout my life. Um, and I think that I grew up in the early nineties, so things were pretty progressive, but not nearly where they are today. So like the term trans transgender didn't really exist much less for a small child like myself. Um, and I just thought that I was a very strong tomboy and there are plenty of people that have that. And that, that is, that is what they are. They are, they identify as female, they feel feminine, but they just, like masculine things. And some people would also identify that as androgynous, right? A person that has both feminine and masculine characteristics, which that seems to be a dig. Like, I don't know why the first time when I was real young, I was called androgynous and I thought it was an insult. And that's, that's Mm. sad that I thought that, but like research suggests that those that are androgynous that can both tap into their masculine and feminine traits actually have higher levels of IQ they're actually considered more creative and they typically fare very well in their job profession because they're able to do things that allow them to be both. Right. So they're kind Mm -hmm. of like all encompassing. So one thing I always tell my students is like, even if you're not trans or queer, or, you know, if you identify as your, you know, biological sex and that is your gender identity also, you know, like, don't be afraid to embrace the parts of you that are, opposite of what you identify as. And I think that our Mm -hmm. society has grown up scared because we like to compartmentalize, you know, like gender typing process with children is, is common. It's, it's expected. Children are expected to be able, like they're, they're learning words, they're learning. And like, if you look at, you know, research with like gender schema theory, which uh, Jean Piaget is a, one of my favorite theorists of all time, but he looks at the word boy and girl as a schema, meaning it's a mental representation. So if I have a schema for the word um, house, you know, like what does a house look like to me? And I close my eyes and I picture a house, right? That is my mental representation of house. Children do this with the word boy and girl. So if they close their eyes and they say, think boy or girl and tell me about it, they're going to start to describe the stereotypical, well, boys like blue and boys have short hair or boys have, they like trucks and, you know, and then they'll start to do that because when they learn about things, they want to be able to categorize them. We are teaching them, okay, what are the red things? What are the blue things? What are the things we use inside? What are the things we use outside? You know, like they were teaching children and it's, it's common nature for them to categorize. And I think a lot of people who don't understand the, the complexities of gender assume then that that means that the children should be then put into those categories, right? Or that, because they can represent a category, because they can describe a category, therefore they must select one, right? And we teach that, even if we don't directly state that, we teach that in everything from, you know, the aisles at Walmart that are pink or blue, to the clothing that we put our children in, to, you know, the comments that we make about, you know, who they're dating, or, you know, comments about um, their job occupations, and whether they, you know, should go into this field because they're a female or a male, or whatever it is. And even if it's not directly stated to them, the children and adults in general, I mean, humans are, are very receptive. They're oysters. They take on the world. 
And I remember being very young and thinking to myself, okay, I have to choose here. Like I am a girl, I was born a female, like this is it for me. And there was a very, very solace kind of really gut-wrenching moments in my looking back in my childhood where I just felt very lost because I was like, you know, not that I don't have any, and you know, my mom, you know, my dad, you know, my family, they never once put me in those boxes, but society in and of itself made me think that I had to choose and made me think that this was it for me, that this was the, the card I was dealt. I need to play these cards and I can't shuffle the deck. I can't, you know, it's not like I can pick up other cards. I can't change this. And it was really, really hard to go through that time and to know things like puberty were coming and to know things like, you know, growing up, I wasn't going to be considered who I thought I was on the inside, you know, and a lot mm -hmm. of trans relate to that. And they'll understand that feeling of like, I feel so different inside. And if I could just take that and hold it out to people and wear a sticker on my head that says, Hey, like I identify as a male, I see myself more masculine. If I could just present that to people without them prejudging me and slowly learned as I evolved, as I got older, um, I actually came out like not even in high school, honestly, because high school was a mess and it, it was incredible. It was so much fun and I had incredible friends and I had a really great time socially in high school, but like I purposely did not date. I did not do anything that was, um, that would have exposed, I guess, the fact that I was different on the inside. And I tried to just kind of tell myself like, okay, you know, I'm going to be celibate. I'm going to, you know, be alone forever because I, I can't really see myself being happy with a male being happy and not that all trans people date an opposite or the, an, another gender, I should say, but I was a male, you know, I had felt like I was a male that was attracted to always predominantly females. Like I've never had a relationship with a male. Um, and I knew that so young and I was like, okay, if I can't, you know, date females, cause I am a female, I guess I'm going to be alone, you know, forever. Mm -hmm. Then slowly started learning about what it was to be queer and identified as gay or a lesbian, even though some people, some people who are lesbians prefer the term gay, you know, it, it, cause there is kind of this, like I would say nuance, there's a lot of stereotypical like hate recently towards like the terms bisexual and lesbian, especially, which is a whole nother side story. But I liked just saying when I was able to say I'm gay and how it was slowly becoming more accepted in our culture, right? Fast forward, like, you know, early 2000s, right? Where, okay, this is a little bit more common. And I was like, okay, this feels, this feels like it fits. And I could still, that way I could date who I wanted to and I knew like, yeah. okay, there's a group for me, you know, and I spent a lot of years as identifying as a female using she, her pronouns, dating women, you know, but then throughout puberty and onward, as my body changed into being more feminine, um, I felt lot that lost feeling again. It was like all the stuff from my childhood had resurfaced, you know, like those feelings of like, Ooh, something's off. And I just, I, I don't even want to say I hated myself. I just hated the position that I was in. And I was very angry. I was like, why is this happening to me? And I had, I felt a loss of control because I could not control my physical appearance and I could not control a lot of other things in my environment. I was going through college and I was just really stressed in general with 
relationships that were very toxic and friendships that were very toxic. And, um, you know, my college experience, I tried to take control because I lost control of my body. I tried to control everything else about my life. So that, you know, took, that made me take on every role under the sun. And I was just trying to fill my life with so many things to distract me from that feeling of my body changing and not identifying with who I was physically as a person. And Mm. I hated being in my body. And it was to the point where it was kind of like when you have like an itch that you can't scratch and all you want to do is scratch the itch and you try to like tap it, you know, like if you don't can't scratch it, like maybe you try to tap it or you try to like shake your arm to get the scratch to go away and nothing would get it away. Um, And I actually ended up um, dealing with a very, very heavy eating disorder, which is now that I'm researching it more is very, very common in queer populations, especially those with body dysmorphia, which is what I experienced. Um, And a lot of people throw around that term body dysmorphia. I know a lot of my fitness friends talk about it and I am not trying to discredit their experience, but it is a totally different form of body dysmorphia when it also is attached to your gender dysphoria. Right. Mm. So when, you know, a lot of people who are like, maybe they start working out and their body changes and then they become super critical of their body. Like that is absolutely totally a thing. There is a lot of research behind the significant impact of that. But for me, it was also tied to my gender doesn't match also. Like, so in addition to just like my body feeling out of sorts, also like, you know, the parts of me that are feminine were just felt like, like scars that I was carrying around and Mm -hmm. it was really hard. Um, and I, I took a long time. I went to treatment for the eating disorder, many forms of treatment inpatient, outpatient. And I know you are familiar and you, you saw me through that process and yeah, you were pretty young. Um, so I don't even know if you and like your family and a lot of the people in my family even knew what it was because nobody in my family, um, like some family members, but like my mom, especially, and like the closest family members that I had, had never really experienced that. So it was scary for them, you know, and a lot of times you see eating disorders run in families. And for me, it was mainly through like other friends and my socialization of being a female fed into that eating disorder. And so that was really scary. And I had to work through that. And then finally, kind of on the other side of that um, was where I first found out what trans really was and uh my best friend in the entire world named leo who i think you should actually have on on the podcast i think they would be they're really into um like queer theology and they're getting their degree um you know being a pastor a trans um non-binary trans so they use they them business owner incredible person um but i had become friends with leo through ironically (laughs) our campus ministry uh, program at Edinburgh. And because Leo and I had grown up in the church, you know, you're familiar. Our family is pretty, you know, spiritual, you know. Um, So I'd grown up in the church with my mom, which made it all the more hard for me to recognize that I was trans because we are not readily accepted by most denominations at all. Um, But Matthew, who at the time was pre-transition, I was obviously way pre-transition, and I remember Leo sat me down after our campus ministry. Now, mind you, we just got done singing worship songs, right? Together on a stage. We sat down at a coffee shop afterwards and Leo asked me point blank, like, hey, like, you know, 
I know you've identified as, you know, like gay and you're female, but like, do you have any, like, like, I, I feel like we're connecting a lot and basically asked me in a really nice way, Hey, are you trans? And I completely flat out denied it. I was like, no, no way. But that kind of planted the seed because I think I needed somebody to just sit me down and ask me because I was trying so hard to just like blur it or block it out to not think about it. Um, yeah. And not saying that you should corner all people you think are trans because don't <laughs> No. but it just opened the conversation. And the most trusted person I had in my life was Leo. And I knew that of all people for me to disclose this to, it would be Leo because Leo was currently going through that as well. And I watched and I was a couple years behind Leo. We're, you know, pretty far apart in age. But I remember watching Leo's transformation and how eloquent, you know, I thought it was, which it wasn't. But like the process of coming to yourself and not that you can ever model that after someone, but just having somebody that you know means the world. And I remember that moment when we were at that coffee shop and that mere conversation changed my life, absolutely changed mm -hmm. my life. And now fast forward years later, after coming out as trans, and we can talk about that more if you want, but I remember that conversation and I have since tried to be the Leo, so to speak in my life, mm. even if it's just being representation. And I have students like every day in front of me that are using different pronouns that are, you know, experimenting with their identity that are writing papers about, you know, um, how they were socialized and I'm reading and hearing reports and I'm having students literally knock on my door and be like, Hey, um, who do I go to about if I want to change my name formally on campus? Or like, can you do this for me? Or like, you know, can I join this research team? Or like, can we talk more about this? Or like, and that alone Aside from academia, I know that it's it's so important for me to be a professor and to be out as a professor because I didn't want, I had no, not a single queer educator in my entire life. And I mm -hmm. think how like the Leo thing had that not happened. I may have never experienced, I, I, it may not never, but I, I may have, you know, had a harder time coming to who I was and it would have taken me a lot longer had I not just had even one experience and even people who aren't trans, you know, I think that every time you interact with somebody that is different than you, you are learning. Even if you do not like that person, even if you do not associate with who they are, I always tell my students and like my nieces and family members and stuff is if you really want to find out what you truly believe, surround yourself in a room of people that are polar opposite from you. Because mm -hmm. then it will, I really believe these things, or am I just only surrounding myself with people that are like minded? You know, like you have got to do the hard work, so to speak, and put yourself up against those that are different than you. And shocker, some of them aren't as scary as you may think, right? Some of them aren't as polarizing and, you know, detrimental as a lot of times we paint the picture to be. We paint polar opposites. We paint the extremes in our lives. So that alone would help me, I think, going forward and, and using that process and knowing like sometimes all they need is just somebody to just to just visualize as who is different and to just associate with even if they never come out as trans they're learning about what it is to be trans just by interacting with me and i think that is the coolest mm -hmm. thing I can do for people you know yeah absolutely oh. yeah just being the the um what's the right word 
I can't think of it right now, but essentially like the model of what um, for those people who may be considering becoming trans of like, oh, here's someone who's done it. And and then it becomes less scary, less totally out there foreign where when you can like see someone up close and personal and see how it's benefited their lives and how they've transformed and it gives uh, permission almost. And, and this could be applied to many different um, things in life and, and paths, but just to see up close and personal, like, oh, this exists and this can exist for me. And um, that guidepost or that, that leader in a way. And so I think it's really awesome what you're doing. And, and, uh, and I mean, even on social media where we follow each other and just like being friends I think about like the older people in our lives and like older folks who it's maybe not as um second nature like it feels more second nature to be like oh yeah like this is happening or all right cool he's doing this great and then like for older folks and I don't I don't know who all you have on Facebook anyways but like I think that is a great form also of like Hey, here's something that you might not understand at all. Um, but there's someone who is sharing a little bit more about it and then creating that sense of curiosity and then empathy as well. Yeah. Um, so I think what you're doing is really important because it's for people who are really steeped in in whether it be tradition or religion that feels very narrow um, in their sense of understanding of like what's okay and what's not okay. Um, I think it's really important to have examples of, all right, this person is, exists outside of what this has traditionally said is okay, but they're still doing the work. They're still being a light for other people. They're upholding, you know, these ideals and spirituality or religion that are so um, important and they're doing it in their own way. And that is religion that is spirituality of like being that light no matter what vessel you are in so I think what you're doing is great thanks yeah I think too it's it's kind of important also to um I think that it's really hard because I think people like use the term like you said even becoming or like the process of like you know identifying that you are trans and there's a difference between like you know, identifying that you are trans, because I would argue that each person that is trans, it is a part of who they are. It's not necessarily, I think people still have this belief that like your identity is something that you choose, right? Um, and so that's why it's hard, like, especially for our older, a lot of the older generation kind of thinks that even things from like, you know, your orientation that like, well, you know, when did you decide like that you were gay or when did you decide mm. that you were trans or decide that you were bi or, you know, and it's hard because for, for identifying that you're trans, there was a moment that I did have a decision. The decision was, do I transition? The decision yeah. is whether or not I want to transition. The decision is not if I am trans, right? That has always been mm -hmm. who I am. And that has been an uncovering process, just like people who are yes. gay or queer or whatever. And I think that, that um, they will associate to the fact that like the whole mindset that like you're born this way and you can't change who you are. And like, it's in so many songs and poems and movies and stuff. And like, it sounds so like cliche and like, you know, fancy or fantasy, like, but it's true. Like 
that is really who you are. I would argue from, you know, the moment that you are born and you figure out who you are along that process and the decisions that you make aren't if you're that thing, whatever it is, the decisions are, are you going to act on it? You know, are you going to live that life? Are you going to fully dive into that and associate yourself? And there are so many people who, for whatever reason, feel that they can't do that or for whatever reason, stifle that. Or you've heard, I'm sure, of things like conversion camps or like parents or families that try to force their child into the lifestyle they want, right? And it blows my mind that that still exists, not just in the U.S., but it's far worse in countries where they can be penalized, sentenced, you know, harmed, physically killed for their identity, which it just it it I can't even think about it without like getting visually sick. Um, yeah, but it's it's so hard because people still think it's a choice. And I, I would argue that there are choices that you can make surrounding your identity about whether you want to live by that identity or not. But there are so many people I know who, for whatever reason, even if it's not forced by family, like I, I grew up in the church. So I have a lot of friends that I watched literally closet themselves, like even either, either they were out of the closet or they never left the closet and they will remain there forever because they feel so burdened by their identity. And that just kills me inside. Mm. And I'm not saying that your identity can't change. And I'm not saying that like, you may feel you are gay or queer or trans. And then suddenly maybe there's a shift and you identify as something else, but that has to be on your own terms. You know, that cannot be based on society or based on your church or based on your parents. Like you have the right to express your identity in any way that you choose and you have the right for it to be fluid and you have the right for it to change. And the thing I like about being trans and the thing I like about being a part of this LGBTQIA plus community is that I have the freedom to wake up each day and decide what part of myself I want the world to see. You know, do I want to act more femme today? Most, most of the time for me, it's not, (laughs) but you know, it's (laughs) like, do I, do I want to do things, you know, today? And I make decisions now for the first time in my life based on what I want to be first, you know, and most people I would argue don't do that. Most people think, oh, I have to go to work because of my boss. I have to do this because of my mom. I have to go to Thanksgiving because of this. And like, I was just talking with some of my students that are literally scared to go home because of the conversations they're going to have. And the holidays are so hard for queer people or for anyone who is different than their family and their family's beliefs. And my argument is always, you know, at some point you have to decide if it's not serving you and if it's toxic to you, you have got to find someone who can either negate that or who can make you feel comforted and whole. And I'm not telling you to just like throw your family to the side because every family is different. And I have tons of friends who work around those hot button topics or who dance politely around things and conversations because they don't want to cut their family off, which is your own prerogative, right? But when your mental health and your even physical health for some of them, unfortunately, is at risk, like you have got to find something that can help you work through that. If you don't feel comfortable cutting them off, find people who can support you and who can provide support and, you know, representation or the freedom for you to do and be who you are. Um, And for some people, it means strictly cutting their family off. You know, for some people, it means changing things within their family, like not disclosing things because they know it's just going to make things worse for them. And I can't really give anybody advice 
specifically on that besides just like do the hard work and find something and, and make sure that your soul and your heart is protected through that. Because I, I can't watch another one of my students or my friends suffer and just feel, you know, put down and minimized and silenced by some other pressure, whether it's family or society or even their friend groups, which it's easier to cut your friends off than your family. Right. But true. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, I, I hear you and all of those people and students who, um, the experience of going home is hard. And, uh, I, I resonate like the part of my life that that feels especially appropriate is like when I was in school, when I was in college and, um, dating a woman for the first time and like that whole thing of like oh shit like going home and like and is this this is my friend but then like oh I've been there (laughs) I've been there pre pre transition it was always and and it was hard too it was hard yeah because you and so so I share that mainly because I I hear and I understand that feeling a fear of like, is my family going to reject me? And are the people that I love and who have helped support me and raised me, are they going to turn away from me because of something that feels uh, right for me to, to be in right now or, or forever or whatever. And, um, and I, so I relate to that in a way and, and yeah, for all those people going home or visiting with their families coming up. I mean, Thanksgiving's tomorrow when we're mm-hmm. recording this and um, they're, they're on my mind and in my heart and um, yeah, hoping that they can find, find the communities mm-hmm. that feel the most uplifting to them because people deserve to have support in their lives. And I feel like if relationships kind of no matter who they're with, if they're toxic and if they're not healthy to your mental or physical well-being, then what's the point? Why even have it, you know? Yeah. And I think for a lot of my students, we were actually just talking in like a non-formal kind of class discussion about the holidays and about socialization and about how, you know, we study family and family dynamics in all of my classes. Um And one thing that my students have kind of recently said is that it helps to have like an anchor in your family. If your family is unsupportive, even if you have like one aunt or one uncle or a cousin, typically it's like the most progressive crazy aunt. Like for me, my mom was the crazy aunt in our family. So like I was, I totally knew my mom would accept absolutely every part of me, no matter what I could tell her, I was a purple unicorn and she would be like, all right, let's roll with it. You know, like I'm so, so blessed. And, um, for some people having just one person to support you, like we say quality matters over quantity. And that is so I would say more true for queer people than any group ever, because sometimes like you can have all these people that are your family members, but you may not feel as close to any of them. But if you have one person, if you have, even if it's like for some people, unfortunately, the they there's this dichotomy of their partner versus their family in a lot of places, which is very difficult. Mm-hmm. I have I've have previous partners who were having to choose between like me and being this identity and their entire family. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking to myself, "Hey, that's a lot of burden for the partner to experience." But I just for felt sure. so helpless because I felt like I can't be this person's family. 
at the same time, that family can't be what this person needs, right? And it's really, really hard because some people, when they get into relationships, if they already know going into it, their family's not going to support them. They they have to do what you did maybe and, and call them a friend or, you know, scoot it under the rug or not address it, or they address it. And then suddenly they realize their family is not supportive and they're forced to unfortunately choose. And that's a very difficult place to be in. And again, it's, there's a lot of research in how much and the magnitude of partner support, specifically when there is no familial support. And I look at social support in my dissertation work, um, looking at both family and friends. And then I also look at um, LGBTQIA friends versus the non-LGBTQIA friends. And most people who are queer or identify as that group um, say that they find most support from those that are most like them, right? So that no offense to their heterosexual cisgender friends, but it's different when you go to them with your issues, knowing that they could never possibly understand, right? That's why the community connectedness, that's why things like pride matter. That's why things mm -hmm. like trans day of remembrance or trans day of visibility matter or bisexual lesbian awareness week, things like that matter, right? Because for many of us, this is our only time to experience unconditional support. Our mm. family may support us with conditions, right? Yeah. The only yeah. people really that are going to unconditionally support us are those, A, that love us so much that it does not matter what we tell them. We could tell them we murdered someone and they would probably still be okay with working through that, right? Or, you know, those people that understand us. So yeah, they're going to offer unconditional support because they've been in our shoes in certain ways. And that aspect of unconditional support is a literal lifesaver. Like I cannot yeah. say how many lives I have watched being saved just because they had people to go to. Like we're talking, you know, those that were very suicidal, that had those ideations that were able to find a community and not have took, taken away their mental health issues. Like that's, those are typically very deep rooted but just being able to talk to them and being able to see there are people that have this experience that are doing okay, right? And I want people to see me and I never present myself saying I'm trans Lee. I say I'm Lee who is trans, right? Because my students, we were just talking the other day. I was like, could you imagine how weird it was if straight people or cis people walked around and said, hi, my name is Joe. Great. You know, I am cisgender. And then they tell you about like, why should they think that trans people should identify with their identity first? And I want people to see that like, yes, I went through this very life altering experience and I did transition and I have found these parts about myself, but it didn't change the fact that I am a successful professor or and successful, we use that term loosely because, you know, what is success, but <laughs> it didn't change the fact that I am still just as much of our part of our family as I was before, you know, right. I'm still the neighbor. I'm still a friend. I still like the same sports teams. I still like the same colors. I still like the same food. Everything about me stayed the exact same. And I was always this trans person deep down. So I don't understand why people, A, they make it such a big deal when they identify others once they learn that that is their identity and I love being, I am so proud to be trans, right? But at the same time, like, I don't want to be pigeonholed into this trans identity and that yeah. and all that I am, you know, like it yeah. is just a facet, just like mm -hmm. our hair color, our 
eye color, our preferences, right? It is just a small facet of who I am. So I want people to see, hey, I'm trans, but like, I'm really not that different from anybody in my area or in my field or my age or my, you know, group of of people that I work with. Like, and I have never felt that way. Thank goodness. Um, post coming out post transition. Um, I really haven't had many experiences where people think, oh my gosh, you're different now. Like, yeah, they make comments about, you know, your voice is lower or your, you know, your, your, your body has changed or you get your facial hair or like your, you know, different things like, you know, that my close friends have made comments on, which it's kind of nice because it means, hey, then what I'm doing is working, right? But, um, <laughs> but it's it's nice because nobody has ever been like, you're so vastly different now. I don't even know who you are, you know, which is yeah, would be yeah. So. And that and that goes back to, and I appreciated your point earlier about that the being versus becoming, and um, and being born as who you are, and the the socialization and getting kind of like okay this is who I need to be and and then over time and and what I found beautiful about like the whole evolution piece is like it's not necessarily that you are changing changing deep down who you are it's more of you are allowing who you have been to come out and 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 change the external but you're still right. who you are and you still right. yeah Oh, you froze. Hello. Like religion, just that process of like, how can I, I'm moving through life and I'm finding things and I'm realizing where my pain points are and I'm going deep into them and I'm figuring things out. And then, oh, wow, this, the way this way I'm going this way and this way leads to this. And then that process of becoming more of who you've already been, but just that, the outside turn or the inside turning out and, and, and your mm-hmm. life, your external life reflecting what's been inside all along. And, yeah. and um, I think it's really, um, I think it's like, I hear you when you're saying, well, I didn't change like the, the Lee who's always liked, you know, I, I, do you like pickles? Like the Lee who's like pickles yeah. is going <laughs> to still be the, you know, yeah. like I still right. like pickles after this experience. So I think that is important to remind people of like, it's not this like earth shattering thing in a way. It's like, you're changing how you present to the world so that you feel better about yourself and more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And like, you're still you. And, mm-hmm. and that's important to remember, especially when people, um, and when we have relatives or or whoever who don't understand what mm-hmm. that process actually mm-hmm. is, and they're just like judging on the outside. Right. Yeah. It's uh. Again, I keep saying I'm very blessed. I'm very lucky, and you know the family that I have. And like, it was hard. I wouldn't say you know I was never disowned, and there was a lot of my family members that just didn't understand like the pronoun change and like the reasons why, which like you know, I can't, I can't possibly like the number one thing that I kept getting comments from some family members, but mainly just like other people who were just like, you know, I understand, but I don't, I don't get the trans thing. And we hear that a lot. Like we hear people in passing, we hear, you turn on certain news channels, not to name any names where they're like, they are attacking trans people and they're making all these, you know, broad categorizations about trans people. And they're saying, you know, like, oh, this happened. And they're, they're telling them about, you know, telling our society about, 
experiences of like trans athletes or like trans people who have committed crimes or like all this stuff. And like, first of all, that applies to everyone. Like you, like, you know, if you look at like logistically, there are more people that are straight that are cisgender that commit crimes or have issues with sports related things than trans people. But for some reason they like to associate trans people with those small instances. Um, but that's beside the point. But when people say, you know, I don't understand the trans thing, my number one response is always, I don't expect you to. Mm. How can I have somebody who has never and will never know what it's like to be trans? There is no way that I can possibly reciprocate how I feel to you. Mm -hmm. So I'm not expecting you to understand, but you don't have to understand someone to respect them, right? You do not have to understand what it's like. You cannot walk a mile in my shoes, but you cannot take away my shoes to walk it, right? Kind of thing. Mm. Like just because you don't know and you have not experienced this does not mean that you get to use disrespect does not mean that you get to minimize my experience. You know, just like I can't speak for somebody who lives in Egypt or I can't like, for example, I tell this and my students, we cover like prenatal development. We cover motherhood, fatherhood. I have never been a parent. I will never knock on wood unless something crazy happens. Give I'll never give birth, right? I will never have my own biological children that I birth, right? So when we talk about the birthing process, I always tell my students, like, now take this with a grain of salt. Some of you who are parents will probably know more than me, right? And I think it is so important that when you speak on topics that you are not associated with, to give those people a window to speak also, or to give those people the upper hand because they know what it's like, right? So whenever somebody talks to me about trans-related things and they are not trans, I'm not trying to sound shady or rude, but I'm always like, hmm, do you really know what you're talking about? You know, Mm. and not that I discredit them because some of them maybe have the research experience or maybe they've worked with trans populations. Maybe they have done tons and tons of research, but no matter what amount of research you do, if you have not lived that life, it's a whole different experience. You can't really put yourself in that perspective. And it's interesting talking to the people like my family and friends. And we've talked a lot about that, about people who have seen me since birth, right? But their opinions and their, you know, comments are so different from those who are just meeting me now as Lee, as the, and I have had, like, since moving here to Fredonia, right, this is the first, the thing that makes Fredonia and this place so special to me is this is the first place I've lived where I have been Lee. Mm. The other places I started as my former name and I started as a person pre-transition, both Erie and Virginia. So all of the people in Erie and Virginia have seen me before the transition and after. This is the only place, the only experience I've had where people don't know that about me. And everything from like meeting people at the gym to like the grocery store to like on campus, right? I've had comments like, oh, I I knew you were trans, which don't ever tell people if they're trans that you knew or didn't know. You don't need to make that comment. Like whenever, if somebody discloses to you that they are trans, first of all, that is a very big thing that they're trusting you with, but you, we're not asking for your agreeance. We're not asking for you to say, oh, I didn't know, or, oh yeah, I knew like that can be harmful. Both comments can be harmful. Some people like to hear that, like they pass very well passing. Right. But some people also don't like that because then they're like, well, I want it. I want you to be able like, I don't, I want to present more androgynous or I want to present more as, you know, like um, fl- in flux. Right. And just, I would argue just to, 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 you know, beg for people not to really make a comment about, cause like when somebody tells you that they're dating somebody, 
or when somebody tells you that they're straight, you don't usually say, oh, I knew that. Right. Or like, oh, yeah, mm. yeah. Like, so when somebody tells you they're trans, a lot of times they're not telling you to get a reaction. They're just telling you to disclose mm -hmm. and they just need a springboard or a soundboard, you know? So, but I have had some people since I've disclosed and so I have to be very careful because Fredonia is the campus is very progressive, like very, but then you like right next door, there's like all these very conservative individuals with like signs and posters and very, very pro right wing, which is typically anti-trans and um, it's hard and I have to watch what I say and do, but it gives me a reassurance knowing that I moved here after my transition because it, if it would have been during the transition, I think I would have gotten a lot of different treatment and it, it breaks my heart for people who aren't able to transition or who are still working through that or who don't think that they can transition because they're so worried about those comments. And it's, it's so hard, but I would argue for those people, like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And that if you do make that decision to transition, right, again, not making a decision to be trans, making a decision to live that lifestyle and to embrace it, I would argue that like, it's so hard. And you may be wondering, is it worth it? And like, you have to make that decision for yourself, first of all, but for almost everyone and the research suggests that those that do decide to turn transition, they do not regret it. And there's like, every now and then there's like one study that comes out where it's like, oh, these people have detransitioned, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, those are, those are people that are so, such a small part of the population. And many times they're detransitioning because typically they didn't really have that trans experience or that maybe they were more gender non-conforming and not trans, right? Or trans, we can be trans and gender non-conforming at the same time, right? But they, there are certain people that are non-binary or that are gender non-conforming that do not, I do not transition because they do not feel either one, male or female, right? And a lot of those individuals may try to push themselves into a transition or may try to push themselves into not transitioning, and it's hard for those individuals because they may feel neither. Right. So often I would argue that those people that do trans detransition is because they are so firm in the middle. They are so fluid that transitioning is a very permanent decision. Right. It's very permanent for the most part. Like, yes, there are things that can be reversed. But when you make that decision, especially if you go into that route for years, it is very hard to get back to the person that you were before. So some people may make that decision and then decide, oh, my goodness, I'm really more just just non-conforming, or I'm really just more non-binary, which is mm -hmm. perfectly valid. But do not assume that everyone that is trans and transitions, because some have detransitioned, do not assume that all want to detransition, you know? And like, yeah. that's an argument too, that I got while I was transitioning or before I was transitioning, people were like, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, mm. you know, it's going to change everything. And I'm like, yes, that's the point, you know, and <laughs> you have, you have to give people. Yeah. Right. Their, that is the point. <laughs> right. It's like, and that was a big thing I know for like, even my dad, because he's such a straight cis guy and he is so pro he's very, he's, he's a feminist hardcore. He's thank goodness for that. Like He's him and I, we have a very same political beliefs and he is very like, I'm very, very um, pro-choice. And he is also, so like, we have a lot of things that are, that align. The only thing that didn't align was he just didn't understand the trans thing, which was his line. And he never will. 
and that's okay for me. You don't have to understand to respect and to still be my dad. And we've had a lot, we've had a lot of hard conversations and he's, him and I are both really coming around to one another, you know, and I'm giving him grace because I think a lot of trans people take that rebuttal and they throw gasoline on the fire by yelling back at them or by, and sometimes you have to either cut ties or you have to just know, like he grew up, he is, you know, like what, 78 years old, 79, maybe 79 years old. So of course he didn't even know what trans was till a year ago when I told him about mm-hmm. it, you know, like, so it's, it's, it's very challenging. And I have given people grace with pronouns. I have given people grace with my identity, hoping that they would give me grace to, and let me be who I am, you know, and, and it's really, really hard to be the bigger person sometimes. And I get that. I get that when people are purposely disrespecting you, obviously, if it is harming your, like you said, harming your physical and mental health, that is a different, that is a different conversation. But if they're just slowly coming around or if they just don't understand, you know, that's different. And I think that that is there is a lot of room for flexibility. And I have watched I have seen my friends going through similar things with their family and I have seen people come around. So I do know that it is possible for a person to change their perspective, whether or not your family does. I can't say, but I would say that in a lot of cases, you have to first give them grace and see what happens and if they're coming around or not. And just tough decisions may need to be made um, to protect yourself, but every family is so different. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're lucky. I know it's, it's a different, it's different for us because we have a very similar, like obviously our, our, our extended family is the same, but our immediate family is different. So obviously it's very different for both of us. And I'm sure that you are probably reflecting on experiences you've had, you know, with, with people that you have dated or people that like identity things that you've realized and come into and wondering if people are going to accept it. And I think that anybody who is different, you know, and it's the same thing with like, I know on my stepdad's side of the family, like there are a lot of mixed race um, couples not a lot, I don't want to say a lot, but quite a few um, compared to the other side of the family where there aren't any. And that was a big thing. I know that like, I remember certain family members saying things like, oh, you know, like this, this person can date whoever, whatever sex or gender they want, but they can't bring somebody home who is not white. And that was like a big, like, oh my gosh, Mm. like that's still a form of discrimination. Like just because it's, racial doesn't mean that it's not as harmful as gender discrimination, you know? And it's like, it's so weird to see how um, discrimination is passed through generations. And a lot of times it's, it's very hard to break that cycle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, (laughs) that's like so big. I don't even know how to touch it because it's absolutely it. And, um, I, I definitely like am remembering my different experiences and different experiences within my family regarding things similar to that. Um, but then, you know, like that's kind of part of the, also the work of going to those Thanksgiving dinners and, and wreaking some havoc a little bit because, you know, like, Hey, people deserve to be respected no matter what. And everybody everybody should be welcome at the table. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's my belief. And Mm -hmm. it's gotten me into some arguments, but yeah, I agree. You know, like sometimes 
it, you know, like you just gotta, you just gotta have, have those conversations and be willing to ruffle some feathers because I think that those conversations really do um, impact people. And I would hope, you know, help, help minds be changed, but I think it's one of the things in a world where we feel like we don't have a lot that we can do. Um, it's one of those things where we can, and we can talk and we can um, have conversations to really build empathy. And today we were talking, um, me and my family here, we were talking about empathy building and why don't people understand, you know, specifically like, why are people polluting the environment? Why are people, you know, hurting other people? There's different wars going on. Like, why can't we just all get along and discussing ways of like yelling at them usually doesn't work, but if we can sit down at a table and have a conversation, usually with some food to lighten the mood and make people happy, empathy can start to be built around, all right, this is still a person, or I, I believe this, and this is why I believe this, and this is why this is important to me and close to my heart. And that I found in my experience is very helpful for helping build empathy, um, right. which then translates into all right, now I believe this thing and I'm voting or now I believe this thing and I'm protesting or now I believe this, you know, and it, there's a ripple right. effect. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally, I think that like what you were mentioning it just about like, it is hard work, but it is, it is very, um, it's a very important work. And typically it's like planting the seed, right. For like something that will develop later. And sometimes even if you don't feel comfortable, even having a conversation about it, um, just showing up is really important, yeah. I think. And again, I don't want to tell people to go to families where like their, 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 you know, health is at risk or they're, they're, they're so put off by the things like, you know, we're talking like violence. We're talking like, obviously you need to stay away from those situations. But for a lot of, of my colleagues and a lot of people that I've worked with, um, you know, both students and both with my research and stuff is sometimes it just takes you being there and like just showing them what it means yeah. to be in your case, you know, a queer person or to be for me, like there are so few trans people, really. I mean, yes, there are a lot. Like when you think about it, there's actually the amount of people that are trans in the U.S. is about the same of the entire state of Hawaii and the entire population of D.C., fun fact. But looking across the country, they're very small and a lot of them are kind of hidden. Right. But sometimes what, what I found is just. I don't need to even have a conversation with them. If they meet me and they find out later or through my conversation that I'm trans and it sometimes helps when they already like know or like, like something about me, whether it's like, we both like the bills, like everybody here is bills fans. Right. So like, sometimes like they'll be like, Oh yeah, Lee's cool. Like he's a bills fan, you know? And they like brush the trans thing under the rug because like I said earlier, it really doesn't matter to who you are. And a lot of times people think that, you know, all trans people act a certain way or all trans people believe, believe this or all trans people wear this or act this way or do these things. And like when they find out, like we, I'm looking at sex differences right now in my child psych class and there are far more differences within a sex. So within males and females than there are between males and females. This is true for virtually every aspect. We're talking intelligence. We're talking even athletic ability. A lot of people are like, well, men are so much stronger. And it's like, not really, because there are a lot of women who have equaled or tied or beaten 
male numbers in statistics for sports, right? Like, so first of all, like, and I get that, like their bone structure and like, there's all these biological arguments, which makes sense, but don't discredit the differences that are within males, right? Or that are within females that are far more extreme than comparing all females to all males, right? Because there's so much overlap. Mm. But what I'm finding is that people often realize that like when they meet me, sometimes just knowing that I'm trans, they immediately realize like, wow, Lee is pretty much just like all of us, like all of us in the gym, all of us in the locker room, which can be a very, very scary place for trans people. And I spend a lot of my time in communities like that, where there's locker room talk, you know, there's gym talk, there's sports talk, which can get really difficult as a trans person. Um, but like I said, I go into it thinking I give them the upper hand and I say, just be yourself. And if you are yourself, they will realize that they are very similar to you, you know, and I don't ever lead with the trans thing, A, to protect myself and B, also because I kind of want people to just associate me as me. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people love their identity so much that they're posting everything about being trans and all this stuff, which if that serves you do that. If that gives you joy to constantly talk about being trans and to post a lot about being trans, absolutely do that. Especially if it brings positive awareness to being trans. Like I post every so often about trans things because I want people to know about it. I care a lot about being trans, but at the same time, like I'm not putting that form, that part of my identity above being a professor or above being a son or above being, you know, a a brother-in-law above being all these things. Like I am not not posting about that to compensate for the other aspects of myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just like I'm, I'm sure absolutely. like you like have probably kind of come to that moment where you're like, okay, well, this is a part of who I am, but like, I'm really the same. I really love all these things. And like, you know, if you find out one per one thing about a person, you should not base your whole idea of who they are off of that one aspect of their identity. You know, just like I, yeah. I use this this example in class, I would say, like, if I lived in an apartment, right, and I really loved my apartment, and I thought it was great, I wouldn't go out and only seek friends that live in apartments because I love my apartment so much. That's like, you know, if I am, if <laughs> I, am, you know, like, that's really so, so in minuscule for who we are. You don't find out yeah. one thing about a person and then judge your entire basis of them off of that. Yeah. And if, yeah. And if, and when that's done to people, it's like, thank you for taking yourself out of my life because I really do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I, and I have a lot of people too, like, I think every trans person has gotten backlash on like social media or comments or things. Um, And it's almost always from people that literally don't even know me. And like, I'm not trying to say I'm like an incredible person, but most people that know me, I would argue know me and for a lot of different reasons and we like each other already you know and it's it's easier to attack people that you don't know like through the internet or through you know screens or people that you will never get to know and i think a lot of trans people get put off by the hate because they can't look past that they can't look past that person is attacking you because they don't know you it's a whole different ball game when the person attacks you and they know you that's different right but like the easiest thing that I've been able to let things roll off my back, because at the end of the day, I'm not going to see them. They're not going to see me. And yes, it hurts and it cuts deep, but they've got their own issues. Clearly, if they're attacking me without knowing me and if they're attacking me 
about something that is so small, like my transition, right. Compared to who I am. Um, and that's what I would, I always try to tell people when they do get hate or backlash, not just for being trans, but for being different in any way is that look at who's giving you that backlash. Do you really want to impress them? Are you really, really concerned about their opinions of you? Most of the time it's not, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> we are coming up. I think we've already surpassed that hour mark. Um, so I wanted to ask you just a, a couple more questions um, real quick. In the in the spirit of getting to know you as a person more, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, gosh. So I have a couple different like health related concerns. Um, I'm trying like a lactose free ish and gluten free because of I have a lot of uh, colon issues and stuff. And I have like horrible IBS, which I know that everybody says they have it. But like mine is like hospitalizations, medications, things like that. But in a perfect world on a day when I take my medicine and, you know, if I could have any ice cream, it would be either two of anything that's incredibly chocolate, like just overload chocolate brownies, you know, syrup, ice cream, <laughs> that's like you know, chocolate pieces. I also really like birthday cake flavored things, which is like super oh, sugary. Like you want to pull your teeth out. It's, it's, uh-huh. yeah, those are my two. What about you? Oh, um, I am a chocolate fan and then also a peanut butter fan. So I really you sound like Mama G. Really, yeah. <laughs> I really I, love a good like peanut butter shake. <laughs> yes. I, so I really love peanut butter, but I like it kind of separate um, from my mm. chocolate, which is weird because a lot of people like them together, but I will like take like when I was younger, I used to take like, like little mini chocolate Hershey bars and dip them in peanut butter like crunchy peanut butter Mm. and eat them together. But when it comes Mm -hmm. to ice cream, like I, I like just straight up chocolate to hardcore chocolate. My mom, Mm -hmm. you know, she makes the Christmas cookies and she makes like the Buckeyes and she makes peanut butter chocolate Mm -hmm. swirl um, candy. That's like chocolate with peanut butter in it. That is just phenomenal. So Mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, And then my last question for you today, Lee, um, if people are interested in connecting with you, um, what's the best way that they can do that? Yeah. So, um, well, my email address, probably, um, I can provide it to you. Um, it's just the first, um, so it's my first name and my last name, L E E. And then my last name is Gombieski, G O L E M. B-I-E-W-S-K-I and then 1313, it's my lucky number, at gmail.com. That's like my personal email. Um, you can also creep on me if you really want um, through the Fredonia webpage, uh, which is I'm in the psychology department at SUNY Fredonia. And my contact information, like my phone number and my faculty email is there also if you're interested in that. Um, but I do give, I've got given a handful of talks, um, invited talks and presentations at a couple different universities based on kind of what we talked about today. Um, like my trans identity and also what that looks like for like healthcare purposes, for mental health resources, especially for college students on college campuses. So a lot of my talks are centered around like, you know, the sexual and gender minority, and then also throwing in mental health aspects. So if you are interested in any of that, um, 
I have stuff like ready to go tomorrow if I needed to, um, to talk about that kind of stuff. So that's also an option. Awesome. Yeah. Folks contact Lee and, and bring him over and let him give you a spiel. It's going to be great. Yeah. I'm really working on kind of trying to extend myself into more professional development opportunities for like teachers, educators, and students, like a lot of CE credits for like social workers and for nurses and for those who are studying um, are in school. A lot of times they need those CE credits. So I've given a lot of talks for those, for people to get those credits. So if you're a school or, you know, a program or even like a, a medical facility and you're looking on training your clients and training your providers, um, there's nothing better that I suggest than to educate them about trans healthcare for sure. Awesome. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up? Um, not that I can think of. Um, I, I do want to thank you for, for inviting me. I know that, you know, any person that has these conversations opens them up to potential ridicule. Um, and I think it's easier to just to talk about, you know, easy topics. And I don't want to say easy in quotes, but, um, I appreciate your willingness to address these things on a platform, on the platform that you have um, and reaching out to me. Um, it was really great just from a cousin level to be able to connect back. Yeah. With you. Um, so it's, I'm really appreciative. I thank you for that. Yes. Thank you for coming on and sharing and opening uh, up about yourself as well. I know that that that's vulnerable and takes risk as well. So thank you for that. And I'm also so happy to see you on a cousin level and just get to connect (laughs) with you a little bit more. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm excited to see you doing well. And I hope that um, this podcast really reaches the people it needs to reach. You know, I think that you, you can do some really great things with the, the conversations that you're having. So for sure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to this conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a great review on your streaming platform and don't forget to turn on notifications for our next episode drop. If you learned anything, please share the love with a friend and tag me on Instagram at source magnified. Have a blessed day. Talk to you soon. Ciao.